1: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, I'm happy to have back Oxford medievalist Caroline Larrington. We will be covering Catlin's Ascent to the Eerie and talk about that complicated relationship between the Tully sisters. Steve and I will be covering the first of his name. So, this episode is heavy on the Eerie and Lysa and Sweet Robin. You're going to love to hear more about him. In keeping with that theme, I included a snippet of my conversation with psychologist Gregory Webster. We talk a little bit more about Sweet Robin, and Greg reminds me of a detail in the books that suggests that our young friend actually has psychic ability. Maybe there's a psychic thread in the Tully line? You are not going to want to miss that. Without further ado, it is medievalist Caroline Larrington. Caroline Larrington, welcome back to Electric Bukaloo. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever done a walk in the Lake District?
2: Um, I have to say I never have, actually.
1: Uh-huh. I have. I didn't know that by walk, my host meant hike. And he asked me if I would like to go for a walk in the Lake District.
2: That's a very British distinction. Uh, Yeah, Going for a walk can be anything from a stroll around the city centre to what you would definitely call a hike.
1: What what would have made sense to me is, would you like to go for a walk up some very steep hills? (laughs) I, I mean, I'm not a big hiker. I'm not a big fan of walking uphill. I do like lakes. I like beautiful scenery. It was gorgeous. But boy, oh boy, did I not know what I was getting in for that day.
2: And that's kind of like the landscape of the Vale in some ways.
1: Yes, I was feeling a little bit like Marillion that day. You know, he, uh-huh. he kind of he kind of didn't know. He he kind of thought this sounds adventurous. This will be something good I can talk about or sing about later. But he absolutely had no idea what he was getting in for. And then you know he he quits himself oh, okay by the end. He survives. Uh, but yeah, no, I was I was I kind of. I was kinda of thinking, yeah, I'm a little bit like that. I, I'm not I'm not the heroic type.
2: <laughs> well, it is quite terrifying when I was rereading it last night, that little bit where even uh Kat says, who I can't do this. I just can't go over that saddle with the drop on either side. Yeah, yeah. And Mia has to lead her across. I was thinking, no, even with my eyes shut, you would not get me over that. <laughs>
1: Okay, I'm going to read a synopsis of this chapter, and then we can talk about it. As Catelyn climbs to the Bloody Gate, she is met by Sir Donnell, Knight of the Vale, who will escort her party to the next stronghold. Cat recalls three encounters with the Mountain Clans, and how several of her men had been lost. Soon she is greeted by her uncle, Brendan the Blackfish, who escorts her through the valley and to the foot of a mountain named the Giant's Lance. The Blackfish hears Catelyn's story and warns her that Lysa has changed, and not for the better. He explains that the pressure of King's Landing, the death of her husband, and the fear of the Lannisters has driven her younger sister to panic and extreme caution. Cat's final hike up to the Eyrie is guided by Mia Stone, a so-called Bastard Girl of the Vale. This is done along steep steps with mules and in the dark, when Cat finally arrives in Lysa's solar. The two sisters argue about how to best deal with the Lannisters. Young Robert Arryn suggests that they will make Tyrion fly. Caroline, would you like to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos?
2: I think we should just climb the ladder of chaos, because I'm sure all the rest will come up as we talk.
1: Chaos it is. What would you like to talk about?
2: Well, I was struck thinking about the chapter this morning... As to what a great example it is of Martin's world building, hmm. that we've suddenly come into this completely new space as as Kat gets to the point where she can see down into the veil. Yeah, and it's really beautifully described with the uh, the waterfall of Alyssa's tears, and then the the giant's lance, as you say, the mountain that the eerie is built on. And particularly interesting, I think, is the way you can't quite catch sight of the eerie; It's so high up. And you yeah. just occasionally see the light glancing off it. And you think, whoa, that is that is high. And that is mysterious. What is she going to find when she gets up there? And you have these kind of alarm bells sounding, first mm-hmm. of all, quite gradually, when um, the knight of the veil vale, who greets her says that the Lisa is is very strict about um, who is stationed where and who is allowed through and so Mm -hmm. on. And then uh, the blackfish is, is much more forthcoming, but even so he, he doesn't really want to frighten cat too much. So he kind of minces his words slightly about uh, what she's going to find when she's reunited with her sister.
1: Yeah. So the geography and her sort of state of mind are in some way parallel. Mm. and just showing her extreme caution and even so much so that she is wary of cat you know she she acts like she is glad to see cat but immediately she's angry that she's almost angry that anyone anyone would dare to come because she is so isolated and she feels like that is her one strength you know
2: that's right. It's a wonderful switch, isn't it? From the kind of, oh, how lovely to see you, dear sister. Yeah. Yes, dear sister. And so on. And the minute everybody has left the room, she's kind of shrieking at Kat. Why are you here? And why have you brought Tyrion with you? <laughs> and you can see that that terror which is driving her. That the, And in some ways, I think at this stage, we know that, that um, Lysa is right, that the Lannisters are to be feared. And even if the Lannisters don't know where Tyrion has got to at the moment, because they've been put off the scent, I guess, and are expecting to find him on the King's Road going up to Winterfell. um, Nevertheless, Lysa is kind of right that this is not a good situation for her to be in.
1: Mm -hmm. I'll read this, uh, just the short part. Oh, cat, how good it is to see you. My sweet sister, she ran across the chamber and wrapped her sister in her arms. "'How long has it been?' Lysa murmured against her. "'Oh, how very, very long.' "'And then I'm going to skip down here. "'She seemed to notice the others in the room, "'her maid, Maester Coleman, Servardus. "'Leave us,' she told them. "'I wish to speak to my sister alone.' "'She held Catelyn's hand just as they withdrew "'and then dropped it in the instant the door closed. "'Catelyn saw her face change. "'It was as if the sun had gone behind a cloud.' Have you taken leave of your senses? Mm-hmm. So you really get that sense that um, Lysa is so, I, I don't know if paranoid is the right word here, but I, I wrote down paranoid a couple times in my notes and I thought, well, maybe I'm reading too much into this character. But she's so cautious that there are deceitful or you know prying eyes in the room that she will even sort of put on this show, even isolate it up, Up in the up near the sky in her own bedchambers, she is going to put on this little show just for a few people in the room because she doesn't want to reveal anything about her true feelings, you know, with anyone watching, even when she's isolated, even when she's totally protected in the stronghold, she is playing the Game of Thrones, and you Mm. really feel like. That those five years in King's Landing really hammered home to her how dangerous the Game of Thrones is.
2: I, I think that's absolutely right. But at the, the same time, and you can see from Kat's point of view, it's kind of what does Lysa expect having sent that letter to mm. Kat in the first instance, the letter that you know, kicks off mm-hmm. so much of the, the whole plot line. Yeah. As well as the, uh, events in Winterfell and King's Landing so far about yeah. the death of Jon Arryn and the the suspicions that Lysa has and all the trouble that then comes in, in Winterfell with the attack on Bran and so on. You kind of imagine, well, you know, Lysa, what did, did you think you could just send that letter and nothing would happen? Mm. And Lysa says, well, yeah. you know, I just wanted to warn you, that's all. But Kat is a doer, isn't she? She's not somebody who just looks at the letter and goes, "Mm -hmm." Mm mm-hmm. And because she shares everything with Ned, of course, she has set things in motion that Lysa, I think, hadn't quite expected.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I'm not sure what to think about Lysa's motives here because... She certainly says, "I told, I sent you the letter so that you would stay away from the Lannisters." But does it almost makes me think, like, does she not know her sister? Wouldn't she know that Kat would sort of be a more proactive? And because we know that there's a bit of intrigue here with Lysa and Littlefinger, Mm. I wonder if the letter was meant to manipulate. Even if it was in her voice, I wonder if Littlefinger is sort of behind that. Because I just, I it's just hard for me to think that Lysa would expect anything less from Cat. But th- these are maybe that's an unanswerable question at this point. It's
2: unanswerable at this stage, isn't it? I think because we haven't seen so much of Littlefinger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Cat is still thinking kind of fondly of him from the old days, and she. She Uh talked about Littlefinger in her previous chapter and saying, well, I'm sure he didn't go around saying that he took my virginity. And Tyrion and the others are going, well, he he certainly did. And so we're beginning to get a sense of doubt about Littlefinger, which Cat is a bit slow in catching up on, but you can see the seeds of doubt beginning to be sown there previously. It's entirely right that Littlefinger has... More or less made Lysa write the letter without Lysa really knowing at all what Littlefinger is up to.
1: So yeah, we see Littlefinger like we in retrospect, right? It, it's hard; it would be hard to see this on first read, but hmm. I think that in retrospect, we really see that Littlefinger is leveraging his relationship with these two sisters to—I don't know—sow some chaos seeds i suppose yeah and in a way that will dr- will probably put a wedge in between these two sisters and he's going to try to use it to his benefit at some point i don't know if he he knows exactly what's going to happen but i He'd do have think to have
2: a pretty kind of prophetic sense to know exactly what would happen i think he's just like somebody kind of poking a stick into mm-hmm. an anthill just to see what happens when the ants run out yeah and thinking, I can I can capitalize on whatever yeah. happens.
1: That's right, and I do think he thinks, okay, well, if I leverage, Cat's trust for me, then I'm really also manipulating Ned and the North. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly mm-hmm. what Littlefinger thinks will happen, but whatever the case, he is absolutely behind this growing divide between these two sisters.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's going to turn out that he's always been kind of playing them off against each other, Yeah. not I mean, whatever his feelings originally for Cat back when they're all young. Mm-hmm.
1: And then I also you mentioned Cat's uh, doubt, and there's a great line in this uh, in this chapter where, for a moment, she's looking at Tyrion, and Tyrion just looks like he's totally un worried about his predicament and she wonders it's just one line she wonders if she's maybe misjudged the man Mm. and she maybe he is innocent maybe he isn't behind all of these horrible things that i'm accusing him of and then immediately she kind of puts that away you know, she puts that to the back of her mind and she thinks, no, I'm going to, it says she resol- she resolved to go forward. And it's almost as if she's thinking, too many men have died because of this decision. I'm going to go forward as if this was the right decision.
2: Yeah. And you can see that um when the Blackfish turns up and they're talking about what's happened, you can see that he's with his political sense, not only of, of what the situation is in the veil, vale, but more generally, that he thinks that whatever it is that Kat believes about Tyrion probably isn't correct.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and
2: he's, he's a bit more doubtful. And there's a point where Kat is having to justify herself to him and she has to answer uneasily. And you can see mm. that kind of growing sense of maybe, just maybe, but you're absolutely right. She's kind of committed herself now. It's like getting on that that path in the darkness to go up to the eerie, that mm-hmm. there's no turning back. And I think that that terrifying journey up the steps is kind of like Cat's path at this point. That yeah. Every step forward just limits the possibilities of going, you know what, I was wrong, let's start over.
1: Interesting. It's such an interesting way to show us just how difficult it would be to actually bring armed forces into this area, and how a lot of these medieval strongholds would use geography to their advantage for that very purpose.
2: Yeah, you can exactly imagine the kind of castle, um, just thinking of, of, I guess, some of the examples you see in Germany, Um, but even some of the Welsh castles you look at and you think, yeah, that would be really, really hard to take. Even if you don't build a moat around it, which, of course, is one way of, of making attack difficult, but just being so high up and with a single route up there and such a problematic route as well. You can see why Lisa says, well, they will never take the eerie, the castle is impregnable. Mm. And Katz, in a you know way that I think is going to foreshadow later events, says you know, no castle is impregnable.
1: Right. I don't know if you have off the top of your head the name of a few castles in Germany that our listeners could maybe do a Google image search for. I've never seen a castle that was this protected by the geography. You know, I've seen castles built along cliffs where like if you were going to go to it you really have to choose this one route up. And then, of course... It would no, be- I
2: can't quite think of a, a German castle. I'm just thinking of some ruins you know, along along the banks of the Rhine. Right. Mm. I guess somewhere like Tintagel, okay, um, which is not so high, but it's on an island.
1: That's exactly the kind of thing I was thinking of.
2: And you can't climb up those cliffs to get there very easily. Yeah. And I guess somewhere like uh, Harlech as well. Is, isn't I've got a town built around it, of course, but it's high and you can see everybody coming from from where you are.
1: Mm -hmm. What Martin does is by bringing Cat step by step along this journey, he really does show how impregnable this thing would be.
2: Yeah, and I really think it makes you think about the way in which castles function and how they're defended. It's part of that kind of exactness and detail that Martin so likes to bring to mm-hmm. bear on mm-hmm. the world that he's creating. That it's not just a, a question of the castle's really high up a mountain. It's hard to get to. You you really do have to think about, not just about how you might attack it, but how, how did they get provisions up there. And then he tells us about the baskets and how practical it is actually to live somewhere like that mm-hmm. and how isolating and what kind of effect being hidden up there must be having on on Lisa yeah. Lysa, or even even if she hadn't brought her own kind of paranoid fears with her from King's Landing, it's a really unhealthy place to be.
1: That's interesting. So there's, a, I think that there may be a couple other little literary hints in this chapter. Early on, she's thinking about the men that have been lost because of her decision, and she wonders if her heart is turning to stone. Because she, you know, she doesn't quite. She's not quite lamenting the loss of these men, and uh, and there's just that little hint, like, hmm, early seeds of Lady Stoneheart here. That's that's. I
2: didn't spot that. Yeah, that's very good.
1: Sometimes she felt as though her heart had turned to stone.
2: stone.
1: (laughs) Six brave men had died to bring her this far. Anyway, there was that, and then of course she. Meets along the way someone named um, uh, Mia Stone. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting that she, she has these complicated feelings about this person she's never met before just because of her status as a bastard in the veil.
2: That is interesting, isn't it? Because on the one hand, she kind of warms to her at first. And mm. then there's that moment which kind of, she freezes and mm-hmm. thinks, a bastard, another bastard, and thinks about Jon Snow up there at the wall. And, yeah. And turns, she's still kind of being polite and smiling, but so there's a kind of chill in what she's thinking. And then then Maya confides that uh, she has a lover who's a squire and is hoping to become a knight, and then they'll get married next year. And And Kat is thinking, oh, that's not going to happen. And no then knight marries a bastard.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- that's, he- of course, never going to happen. She And she knows these class distinctions really mean a lot to Kat. You know, mm. when Mia says... You know, you, some people like to do this with their eyes closed. Uh, you know, Kat says, I was born a Tully, and I've been a Stark for these many years. I don't scare easily. You know, those names mean everything to her.
2: And that's kind of reinforced, too, isn't it, by the fact she's just seen the blackfish. And so um, who even he is is wary of going up that path by night. Uh, yes or no mules he's he thinks that that Lysa is mad to send for cat at that point, but yeah, you can see that cat absolutely bridles at the suggestion she might have to shut her eyes but then of course the the point comes when she does That's and right. that point too when she gets to the very top when she gets to the sky and looks up the kind of chimney that mm. is the final staircase and goes, to, "Oh, you know what I'll just go in the basket." I do not care about my dignity any longer. Yeah. And you can sense her her age there, which is not to make her sound like an old crone, but she's uh, she's a middle-aged woman, and she's had a really long, tired, tiring night. And where Tyrion is going now, I have my dignity. I'm not going to be hauled <laughs> up in the basket with turnips. You yeah. know, I'm a Lannister. Lannisters right. do not hang out with turnips. Cat's um, Kat, kind of having to eat humble pie there just a little bit.
1: Absolutely she is. And I think that to be – like early on, she bristles at the idea that someone with the last name Stone – would demonstrate more courage than someone who was born a Tully, right? mm mm-hmm. And then, you I, I have to give her a little bit of credit. She's made it this far. <laughs> and she's, you know, she's had some harrowing circumstances, but you're absolutely right. This humble pie that she's eating is a big deal because it wasn't that long ago she had made up her mind about how to judge... Mia, simply because of her status as a bastard. And you can kind of see here just a little hint of how hard Jon Snow would have had it. Mm. Being under that eye of Kat up in Winterfell. She doesn't even mention Jon's name when she thinks of him. She says, she, you know, she sees my, Mia, she hears that she's a bastard, and then she says... Uh, and that made her think of another bastard, Ned's bastard, up at the wall. She won't even name him.
2: That's true. And yeah. then,
1: of course, um, <laughs> then of course, you know she she has opinions about uh, Mia's prospects. But by the end, it's Mia who's like r- bringing Cat along with such care, such gentle patience you know words of encouragement and she really sort of demonstrates how valuable she is at that moment she mia stone is absolutely cat's lifeline um because she's paralyzed
2: yeah um that's a moment where she has to just put herself in the girl's hands but she has had a, a little bit of a softening before hasn't she when She's reminded, having just thought about Ned's past, that she also thinks that she's a little bit, uh, Maya's a little bit like Sansa, that she has these oh. slightly impractical dreams. Sure. So, but then she's, that was at the beginning of the journey. And since then, she's almost fallen asleep and then been refreshed by the, the food at the first Way Castle. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, then she absolutely has to put herself in, in Maya's hands.
1: Were there, was there anything in this chapter that, that struck you as that you thought, oh, this reminds me of that in my study?
2: I was interested because I'd quite forgotten that the Blackfish had decided to pop company with his brother, Cat's mm. father, mm. and follow Lysa up to the Vale mm-hmm. to serve her there. And I suppose what that did make me think about was the the prospects for younger sons. right. That Hosta Tully was always going to inherit River Run, and was always, as we hear, a little bit too busy to mm. take note of Kat and, and Lysa right. and, and Littlefinger as well when they were young. But the younger son, Brynden, had more time and was available to the kids. There,
1: he became something of a father figure to the kids, even Peter. And Kat and Lysa, they always felt that they could go to Brendan. And it says that he celebrated in their childhood triumphs and failure, you know, lamented with their failures. You know, he's something of a favorite uncle, but Hoster seems to be more of a distant father, which makes the favorite uncle role all the more pronounced. But like you say, he also has the predicament of being that second son.
2: Yeah. And what is he going to do with himself? Right. And you can see it's, it's very typical, I think, of, of medieval noble brothers that mm. the, they can't both do the same thing. <laughs> because there's going to be rivalry, they're going to fall out with each other. And, right. and the younger one in particular needs to find something else to do. So Brynden is very wise to go off elsewhere mm-hmm. and not to hang around being a loyal support to, to Hoster at River Run. He really does need to find his own way. But it's interesting that he chooses to go with Lysa, where he's always going to have to play second fiddle in some ways to John Aron. But then I guess while while John is down in um King's Landing. The the blackfish, along with the, the Royces, who mm-hmm. are the kind of wardens of the Vale, aren't they, has had quite a lot of power up there, I guess. And so it does make some sense.
1: Yeah, and he doesn't have to deal with that all too intimate relationship with an older brother, you know, who's always gonna view the blackfish as this younger brother. And there's this wonderful scene, and I, it was really touching, actually. I, I felt, I felt, uh, I, I got all the feels, Caroline. <laughs> yeah. When, when he said, you're far from home, little cat. And she says, you, you are too, uncle. And he said, my home is at my back. Meaning my home is the veil now, I think. And, and she responds and says, your home is in my heart. And I thought, yeah that's beautiful it really was it was nice. it, it really shows you know how special this man is to her it feels like Kat's going somewhere that she's never been before but because she sees brendan it it really is sort of like a homecoming for her
2: yeah, you can feel her kind of breathing out yes. with a sigh of relief when she sees him because Everybody's been so formal and so guarded up, on, up until now as she's come uh-huh. into the veil. And then at last, there's a familiar figure who is a, a kind of forerunner, I guess, of what she might be hoping for from mm-hmm. Lysa, even though she, she fears that Lysa may have changed a bit. She has no idea how much Lysa actually has changed. And yes, there's a, a real sense, because we haven't seen Kat with any of her family, her, her birth family before. Mm-hmm. And we get a sense of what it must have been like to be loved like that as a child. And that that sense of security that it must have given her.
1: You mentioned at the, at the start how this chapter is something of a feat of Martin's world building and it made that little moment made me think, Oh yeah, this is such a dark world. Not just like these conniving figures who want to kill each other, but also the complicated relationship between family members, everything in this story has led me to be wary of a relationship or what what the real motive is. There's a lot of relational tension that Martin's created so that when I encounter that little line, your home is in my heart, it's like this little taste of... <laughs> Fresh water,
2: <laughs> yes, yes
1: oh i I needed that kind of relief. i I really needed that in this chapter because you just want more than anything you want one of these characters to just express just a word of affection that's really authentic.
2: Mm. Mm, I think that's that's absolutely right because Kat has been holding in so much for so long, hasn't mm-hmm. she in her her yeah. journey ever since she she set out. Uh, it's always been on the
1: kind of knife edge. Even when she's happily married up in Winterfell, it's not. It's it's not like this is her home. She she never feels at home there. You know, she's she's always going to be an alien in the Godswood. Yeah, know, Ned's always going to be a. He's always going to be a Stark. You know, he's never going to be someone that's not sort of <laughs> the typical Stark male. <laughs> and and so- it's
2: interesting, isn't it, when she's. Um, when Brynden's trying to prepare her for the, the changes in Lysa and saying, you know, she hasn't had it easy, Kat, down there in, in King's Landing. She had an arranged marriage and and then Kat breaks in and said, well, so did I. Exactly. It's a very sisterly thing to do, I think. So, uh-huh. Well, she hasn't had it so tough. Yeah, you know, I've had it a bit tough as well. Yeah. And then he says, yes, but she, she had the children and she lost them and you're, and, and he kind of glides over the question of what we think we've seen, which is that Mm. Kat and Ned have really come to love and trust each other and slides directly into, well, you've got lots of children and she doesn't have any children except for for little Robert. And he's a bit, and then he kind of tails off slightly. Tell me this. he's a sickly child.
1: Yeah. I have a question for you about this. Okay, so they're having that conversation. It's a Brendan cat. They're sort of, walking through the valley and uh brendan says i think she means to rule through her son and kat mm. says well a woman can rule just as just as well as a man and brendan kind of gives her a side look and says well it would take the right woman yeah all right i wonder is that is that a you know is that sort of Martin bringing in a little bit of a modern sentiment or are do we see examples of that mentality in the medieval aristocracy?
2: Well, I think we certainly see examples of queens who are very invested in their sons when their husband dies and who really relish the the chance to rule in their minority. Mm-hmm. and to, usually with a, a council of of the, the son's uncles maybe to help out, but they really do like to be able to wield that kind of power. And um, I think that's, that's something which is, is quite familiar. But the idea that a woman can rule if she's the right kind of woman, I think think there's that's a bit of foreshadowing isn't it is
1: mm-hmm.
2: is Cersei the right kind of woman because she's obviously going to be doing the, the same kind of thing eventually ruling kind of trying to rule through Joffrey not very yeah. successfully and then ruling through Tommen
1: yeah. with
2: with Marjorie you know, coming up on the the inside to displace her and so Brinda may be thinking about that but also kind of opening larger questions which are going to to haunt the entire narrative of can a woman like Daenerys mm-hmm. rule, which uh, at the moment we I don't think we would be at all optimistic about her chances, given where she is in the middle of the Dodraki Sea still,
3: right. um, still sure. with a,
2: a lot of, of learning ahead of her. So I think he's he's right there. I was also struck when Brynden was talking about the way that Lysa is kind of stringing along the suitors, and this reminded me a little bit of the the figure of Penelope in the Odyssey, that she has these suitors queuing up to yes. marry her, not because, you know, well, I'm sure Penelope is a lovely woman, but actually what they want is to get their hands on Ithaca and right. to, to try and cut Telemachus out of his birthright. Huh. And you can just imagine, uh, we know that Nestor Royce, the, the warden of the Vale, the has proposed them being turned down. And you can certainly imagine... Like flies to honey pots, suitors thinking, "Oh well, here's my chance," and maybe that's also foreshadowing what's in in longer term plan as well. Hmm.
1: Hmm. I got a little reminiscence of late 1200s Italy, Spain, and France with the troubadours who would like. It, it was almost like sport, you know. It was like here we are entertaining mm. these, you know, ladies at court. And in this particular social set, the woman does have the power to d- decide which man gets to, you know, gets to sing another song or gets to take her hand. There is something there that Lysa is sort of uh, manipulating, I suppose.
2: I suppose so. Though we, We've we only got Brindan's word for it at this point, yeah. haven't we? And uh, you kind of might well I think at this stage you might well imagine this is the kind of capricious lady who's playing the various suitors along and just waiting for the right man to come along and then she'll she'll give her heart or and give give the veil indeed to whoever captures her fancy but I think by the time you meet her you realize that um this is is just kind of strategic on her part right. and that actually the suitors i think once they lay eyes on on Lysa, they think oh my goodness me i mean she's as mad as a bag of snakes <laughs> <laughs> i do not want to get to uh, get mixed up with this woman particularly but you know, uh-huh. for political reasons i'll i'll play that kind of courtly love game of uh-huh. um of uh, saying that I'm in her service and I will do her will, and I think I think you're right. There is something of that um, kind of troubadour sentiment there, that the the lady is all powerful, and uh-huh. where she wishes to grant her heart, then we will all be be satisfied with that. But even in in the 12th, 13th century that was kind of a pose yeah, the real sure. power was always was rig- residing with the men. And uh-huh. the woman nominally has some power until such time. as she gets married, and, and then her her servant becomes her lord, and that's when the tables are turned.
1: Right. I think Brendan has the right of it when he says, I think she likes the sport of it, but I don't think he quite knows why. I think it's, in reality, she's already chosen Littlefinger. Um mm. and so she's gonna play the long game and make it look like, you know, she's considering these men. Whereas Brendan thinks, well, she just like she just likes, you know, the, the feeling of being wanted. And I don't think he quite sees what her endgame is supposed to be.
2: I'm sure he doesn't. And I think although he knows all of the the characters there from their childhood, mm. nobody Quite realizes what sort of person Littlefinger has turned into, mm-hmm. and also I, th- I don't think the Blackfish is married himself, is he?
1: It doesn't sound like it. Uh no. yeah, I, no, I don't. We, there's no mention of a of a wife or children or anything like that.
2: No, so I think he may very well be thinking. Yeah, you know, sooner or later, all women want to get married, and um, mm. so you know, she's just playing the field for the moment. And I think he he doesn't see necessarily the advantages of um, of stringing it out, as you say, till mm-hmm. as far as Lysa is concerned, Littlefinger turns up, as he's going to. You know, quite a long way down the road here.
1: What's the likelihood that uh, I'm just thinking about um, young Robert here? What's the likelihood that someone like that um, wouldn't be sort of nursed by a wet nurse? They they mm. really make a big deal of that in the show, um, but of course it's here in in this chapter as well. is, I suppose, infantilizing the boy instead of sort of making him a man, and um, and this of course is a problematic for the Blackfish and problematic for Cat. And whatnot and i thought yeah but i mean breastfeeding was just it was just a given and then i thought well maybe maybe it's a little odd because she would have had a a wet nurse
2: yeah yeah because the idea that you can't conceive again until you stop Uh, breastfeeding is something that is is quite strong i think um but I guess this lies sort of in her gynecological history, if you like, that she's had these children who died. She's had the miscarriages. And she wants to do everything mm. that's within her power to make this one thrive., yeah. and Brindan is kind of saying, well, um she's invested everything in Robert. and he doesn't look like a great investment with the what with the uh, the shaking sickness mm. and everything else. Uh, Maybe there's also that that hint that there's no particular passion in the marriage with John Aaron and that having having the one child who's still breastfeeding maybe keeps him out of her bed for some time. I don't know that may be reading a bit too much in it. But there's that remark that she's so proud of, isn't she, which, of course, turns out to mean something else entirely. The seed is strong.
1: That's and right. She
2: has taken um, John Aron's dying words, the seed is strong, to, to be a kind of encouragement to her that if she only nurtures Robert then and gives him all of the, the nutrients that she can, that she can make out of her own lineage and, and breastfeed to him, then he'll come through all right. And in fact, as, as we know, or as we will find out, John is talking about something else entirely.
1: Yeah, it's a great little trick that Martin is using here because he puts the words of John Arryn on her lips, and we would imagine that she's quoting them pretty faithfully. She says that he keeps repeating his name, Robert, and says the seed is strong. And, of course, we know in retrospect that John Arryn is saying something about King Robert. Mm. Uh but because of because of Lysa's preoccupation with her own son, she's going to interpret those words in one way. And so in other words, we're getting we might be getting sort of a direct quotation, but it's couched in a misdirection.
2: It's a nice piece of misdirection, yes. isn't it? Yeah, because we we soon come to think of the child as Robin. Uh-huh. A little sweet Robin and not Robert after all. So we forget that kind of confusing element. But at this point, he's still Robert. <laughs> right, but right. but we, we kind of, I think, are encouraged to overlook that.
1: Yeah, yeah. The other thing I was thinking of is that because Lysas had so many miscarriages and stillborn children, this sort of goes back to this really ancient problem for women of nobility that their worth to the realm, and really the pressure that's put on them by the realm, uh, is their value is tied to the ability to produce an heir.
2: Absolutely. And you can see when Brynden looks across from from Lysa with this one sickly boy that she's managed to produce, and then all the children both, Boys and girls mm-hmm. that uh, that Kat can claim as her own, not to mention John Snow, mm-hmm. um, which of course Kat would not. Uh, but there's a real contrast there between the fortunes of the two sisters. And of course, yes. when we meet Celise later on, she too suffers from the same kind of fertility problems that she only has the one child, and that was a, a child who's a daughter and was almost taken from them by um, grayscale.
1: Right. And uh and you can correct me if I'm wrong but I think in general when there was a fertility problem the blame always fell always was with the woman, right?
2: Yes, that was the the kind of rule of thumb.
1: So just get a new woman. Yeah. <laughs> and that's I think that that's also the 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 problem with I mean you can kind of see that lice's extreme caution and and her wanting to protect her son is somewhat, I I want to use the word well-earned just because so much of her own identity is tied up in the well-being of this child. And she knows how precarious the life of a child can be in a way that Kat hasn't really had to deal with.
2: I think that's absolutely right Um, because Lysa... presumably if she imagines little Robin dying she can see the veil slipping out of her hands I don't know who would be set to inherit um Mm. but it's someone who certainly owes her nothing Mm. and so she she really needs to cling on to the boys as constituting her own foothold in the veil and all the authority that that she wields there, and she certainly does seem to have everybody dancing to her tune. So you yeah. can absolutely understand that kind of parano... Now, perhaps we, we're trying not to call her paranoid because,
3: <laughs> yeah. after
2: all, the, the threat is real, isn't it's, it? Yeah, what? it's real. It's not yeah, in your not, mind. Not she... to, <laughs> yeah, you not know, just that he's susceptible to any kind of disease that comes along, uh-huh. but we're beginning... We have a sense already that we don't know the full story of what the Lannisters are capable of. Uh-huh. And even if we don't necessarily think like Kat does that Tyrion is a murdering monster, and I think that bec- that's becoming clearer and clearer in this chapter as well. That that Tyrion's protestations of innocence are completely credible, right. and the way as well that Tyrion is is kind of winning people round
1: mm-hmm.
2: and building those alliances, and he's hanging out with Marillion. and that that crucial relationship mm-hmm. with Bronn is is building there and Brynden says well you know when when um Kat says well I've yes I have brought a Lannister to my sister but I brought him in chains and Brynden says well he seems to be riding along with an axe in his hand and a a dirk at his side and I don't see any chains there yeah yeah and and Cat has said rather hurriedly, well, no, 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 but he's still absolutely in my control. Mm-hmm. But you can see Tyrion's charm at work there yeah. um, in a way that uh, I think already is, is building our, our sense that he's somebody who is going to be one of the more sympathetic characters in the narrative.
1: Yeah, and there's that crucial moment where you know she's going to she's going to go further beyond the first you know wayside castle and marillion says uh you know my lady please let me come with you i i started at the beginning i really should see this through to the end and cat feels like i don't really owe this guy anything mm. but he's made it this far and i think i i think i should probably grant this this request to come and so she says yes to marillion and that actually is a a really crucial moment because as soon as that door is open, Bronn steps through it as yeah, well. So it
2: goes, oh yeah, I'm coming too.
1: Yes, if yes. she would have said no to Marillion, she could have easily said no to Bronn, and she absolutely doesn't want Bronn and Tyrion to keep, keep you know, to keep becoming friends.
2: Yeah, but it's going to turn out to be absolutely crucial. Yeah. And I think Marillion is, is such an interesting character at this point. Well, kind of generally, because it always strikes me that what the world of, of A Song of Ice and Fire is really interested in, in terms of the stories within that world, uh-huh. are, is usually history. It's the records that the maesters keep of what happened in the past, or it's it's you know, kind of stories that old man tells, the sort of legend. But nevertheless, she tells things that she says happened, uh, stories like the rat Rackhawk and so on. But Marillion is, is a poet and an artist who's working now, and he's shaping yeah. story as we go along. And you can see that for him inspiration for his songs is absolutely crucial even if if Tyrion kind of makes fun of him for for trying to rhyme and I think it's that sense that you you have to let the storyteller come along too Mm. and be a witness to the narratives that he's going to shape later even though things don't turn out so well for Marillion in Marillion's gonna become term.
1: a tragic character later on.
2: Yeah, yeah. But at the moment he's he's slightly annoying, but he's he's <laughs> likable and uh, he has a beautifully musical name. And yeah. you think, yeah, yeah, he's he's kind of lightening the the picture a bit because otherwise you've got um Bronn being sardonic, you've got Tyrion mm-hmm. trying to um keep his spirits up and and with the odd wise crack, and then you've got a whole lot of, of men at arms who are not really easily distinguishable from one another. Mm-hmm. So you need to, to have a figure like Marillion. So but yeah, yeah, Bronn is is really emerging at this point, isn't he, from just oh, some guy. Yeah. Into um exactly the, the figure who's gonna save Tyrion's bacon in uh in his situation in the Erie, because yeah. the the way the chapter ends is so it sends always sends a shiver down my spine. The idea that uh, <laughs> nobody knows, Cat doesn't know. Ned has not mentioned. Ned's told Cat a fair amount about the Erie and how it has the seven towers pointing to the sky uh-huh. and so on, but he hasn't mentioned the sky cells and he hasn't mentioned the moon door. That's right. And we don't know about those those horrors. And,
1: and sweet Robin absolutely does.
2: <laughs> we want to make that little man fly. Uh-huh. And uh, there's Lisa going, yeah, yes, yeah, maybe we will. Maybe we just will do that.
1: So some notable introductions in this chapter. We meet Sir Donald. We meet Brendan Tully. We see the Vale of Arryn and uh, the Giant's Lance for the first time. We meet Sir Vardis Egan Meister Coleman, Lord Nestor Royce, Mia Stone, and of course Sweet Robin, who's just called Robert. Um, so a lot of introductions in this chapter, and and I suppose because we're introduced to the Blackfish, that's an opportunity to give us a little bit of backstory with Hoster Tully and um, you know Cat's childhood.
2: Yeah, that's really important, I think. And um yeah, Nestor Royce is a that name Nestor of course is a kind of another gesture towards the Odyssey as well. That, oh, tell
1: uh, me why I missed Nesta. that. Tell me why. Oh, yeah,
2: Nestor is is a figure of wisdom. He's older and wiser than Odysseus.
1: Oh, that's right.
2: And uh, and so if we weren't thinking about Penelope with this kind of playing off the suitors against each other, I think the mention of Nesta's name is enough to to kind of flag that up a bit.
1: Yeah, I missed the flag. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, A couple key differences between the show and the book. Well, all of this Blackfish stuff is deleted.
2: That's right. I didn't remember him showing up at this point in the show. And I think also... The show ages up all of the children pretty well, doesn't it? For kind of yeah, practical reasons as much as anything. But yeah. Robin is certainly not six in the show, is he? He's no. He's more like, I guess, about ten.
1: He's more like ten, and that brings out the the, the problem of his uh, clinginess, his sort of, I don't know, we, we say mama's boy.
2: Yeah, and the breastfeeding becomes really weird. When, yes, of course. When he's that old.
1: That's right. And the more Elisa clings to the boy, the more people want to separate the two.
2: That's for sure. Um, because there's nobody, there's no man with any authority, no kind of role model in the, the mm. castle that can help Robin become a Lord of the Vale, which is what yeah. his destiny is.
1: So that's mm. the difference between the show and the book. In this chapter, it's very secretive. Caton likes to have that first conversation. In Lice's bedchambers, where in the show she's like, she's at court, and
2: it's quite public. Isn't it's it, all there? very public. Mm. That's right.
1: Mm. Yeah. So that was a key difference, uh, and I and I do get you do get the sense in this chapter just what a treacherous hike that is up to the eerie that you couldn't quite do in the in the show.
2: Yeah, um, because what the show really emphasizes in a way is not so much the way up, but Mm. the quick way down.
0: This episode is brought to you by Jinx, (laughs) the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart.
1: And now, Steve and I cover season four, episode five, the first of his name. This is the Tom and Coronation episode. Peter takes Sansa to the veil. Danny decides that she's going to stick around in Marine a little bit longer. And John's group of Avengers attacks Craster's Keep. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve Thirsty Boy's back. Oh, man, that boy's thirsty. <laughs> that just doesn't outgrow it. Come on. get some solid foods bro he's not the brightest kid you've ever met
0: man this guy this guy it's like it's it's interesting you just a little little bit of him goes a long way
1: see every now and again you think yeah why not kings and queens and then you look at that guy and think because of that (laughs) because what if that's the only option for the lord of the eerie (laughs) yeah so so here's Sansa. she thinks that she's in a better situation Nope. <laughs> well,
0: she's in a different situation.
1: Crazy Aunt Lysa. Wow, she' crazy. And and Crazy Aunt Lysa wants to marry her to her simpleton son. Mm-hmm. Which may be better than I mean, le, le, or yes, definitely, what are you talking definitely about? better, <laughs> definitely better than Joffrey. Well, sure,
0: sure. We we assume. See, the thing is, is we don't know what this guy. He wants to throw the little man through
1: the window, kind of thing. He's a whole. He's got a whole thing this guy this guy this is the kind of guy that says hey i love this gift thank you very much let me throw it out the moon door (laughs) it could be like i i now pronounce you man and wife i love you very much i would like to see you fly (laughs) well
0: that's the problem right so joffrey it's like you at least we got a glimpse with marjorie that's like okay once you kind of figure out his kinks you just sort of distract him with his kinks mm. this kid's dumber than dog shit i mean he is he, he's a problem <laughs> and he's gonna be a problem until he goes
1: through the moon door okay so do you remember how at the, the end of every scooby-doo episode the villain would confess mm-hmm. i kind of got a little scooby-doo ending vibe from lysa and she yeah. you know she's about she's trying to jump balish's bones and she's like, so she just, she just hey, it remember all, out, but... all the bad things we did together? Let me <laughs> detail that. Let me give you a bullet point list of everything we did together that was horrible.
0: Yeah, she's like a Bond villain who is just absolutely
1: convinced that James will not escape. So this goes back to the very first episode of Game of Thrones, because Ned goes south because John Arryn has been killed. Right. Oh, okay. And then That's Ned, right. Ned is trying to, like... Figure out, like, what really happened to John Arryn, and what was the book John Arryn was reading, and why did John Arryn go visit Gendry, and all that business. That was a huge plot in the first season. And this is just a really unsatisfying conclusion to that plot. Yeah,
0: it just sort of, like, all right, we can move on from the, if anybody still remembered that.
1: Well, I remembered it, and that was a big deal, and I kind of felt like this, you're going to give me a Scooby-Doo ending on that plot? That was a really <laughs> fascinating yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't thrilled. Um, Danny decides to stay and rule. She has a little lapse of confidence. You know, she 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 was like she was thinking about shaving the mustache off, but now <laughs> she's thinking, no, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna stay and just hang out. And um, I'm not. In other words, so here we have Tommen, who's clearly gullible, right? Yeah. And he's going to be the king. And then uh, Robin Arryn is clearly simple-minded. He's going to be the Lord of the Eerie. And then we have Danny, who's like, you know what? I don't think I want to be a child queen in Westeros. I think I'm going to grow up here, learn how to rule here, and then I'm going to go to Westeros when I'm ready. And so she messes up. She's like messing up a city she's already messed up. (laughs) Yeah. So, I think that's interesting that that she's she doesn't want to make the mistake of of shooting her wad too early
0: right and there i mean there's some there's clearly some wisdom in that. we talked about that in the last episode mm-hmm. too about this like okay, you're leaving these vacuums it's not really helping i it's helping you be a conqueror, so to speak, and that's good for your legend, but it doesn't necessarily set you up for long term uh, rule she's not she
1: now she's working on empire building are you in the hound are you still you still liking those two uh
0: yes i mean and i think i think by the by having the hound complicated again was good i think it's it's a good reminder and if we talked to before about how like oh aria's becoming like the hound and i think we were thinking oh well maybe the hound's becoming mm-hmm. a bit like aria so we wiped that away so then it becomes so rather than it being like, oh, they'll help each other out as they as they adopt each other's personas, so to speak, by having the hound still be the hound, it creates a better sense of peril for Arya's journey if she yeah. doesn't.
1: Yeah, and the, and Arya, I think Arya at one point was thinking, this guy may be the best friend I've ever had, right? Because he he's great at killing, and I want to kill a bunch of people, and this is going to be wonderful for us. And right. then and if he can develop
0: some sort of a conscience, then now I, I can yes. also be then I don't have to feel bad about my loss of conscience because this isn't such a bad.
1: Right. And then after what he does to that, uh, you know, that father and daughter, um, in the cottage, I think she remembers like, Oh, there was a reason why this guy was on my list. Right. And then, uh, he finds her water dancing and he starts ridiculing her. And does she think that she's really going to kill him? I know. I mean, I don't know what she, it, she presses that she presses a needle right against his armor, and like, like it's there, almost a little
0: surprised
1: that it didn't go through.
0: Right, I couldn't tell what the big if she was more surprised that it didn't go through, or more surprised that she just kind of went for. It.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's on her list, no doubt about that.
0: I mean, he knows <laughs> that she's that he's on the list,
1: and, and it's, he's. It's almost like he thinks. It's almost like he doesn't view her as a threat, like she's she's not gonna slip my throat in my sleep uh she couldn't kill me with a rock, but then he gives her back needle as if to say, uh, I don't know, I mean would I wouldn't get if someone tried to stab me with a knife and I was able to thwart them, I don't think I'd give them back the knife, <laughs> yeah, I guess it, yeah. But maybe that well, just kind of yeah. shows how So there's a so I've learned about this. So there's a certain there's two different kinds of uh suicidal ideation. And one is active suicidality, which be like you're fantasizing about it, you're writing a note, you know, you, you you're you're playing it through in your head, and then there's passive suicidality where you just don't care. And so you're kind of playing fast and loose with your life and you're like if I don't die, this will be fun. But if I do die, eh, I've had a good run. And I don't, I kind of don't really enjoy living that much. So if the thrill at the end of this journey ends up in my death, I kind of don't care. Yeah. You see this a lot with addicts where they're like, yeah, if this is my last OD, then my life wasn't worth much anyway. And I kind of get the sense from the hound that he's not afraid to die. And there's, I I think there's a little bit of, there's a tiny bit of him that's like. Set me free. Yeah. A little bit. Not actively, but passively. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like if, if this is my fate, then I'd like, he understands death enough and he understands the idea that he he, he's not above, he's not above it. Yeah. Um, you know, in the same way that he brings it, um, there's no reason like it's almost like a to some degree maybe it's a mutual respect for death it's like look i i i'll I'll dish it out but that doesn't make me immune from it and that's part of what makes the the idea of killing maybe even more attractive is that it 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 could happen to him at any time so he's he's simultaneously defending against it while he's um handing it out
1: shout out to mutual friend jason swain who taught me about suicidal ideation yeah we should probably call him See see how he's doing? Do a quick little
0: buddy check. Because if if I recall, he just just brought that up in conversation. (laughs) Hey, have
1: you ever considered...
0: (laughs) Have you ever considered the benefit of just being wiped off the planet?
1: Anyway, got to go. What was that? Pass me a beer, Jason. Um, (laughs) I loved the dialogue between Cersei and uh, Oberyn. Where I think that those two have some kind of mutual respect. This was a strong Cersei episode. Um, I I mean, you really I I really was feeling for Cersei, like separated from her daughter, and you just get the sense that she does she does really love her children, right? Right. And I thought I thought, well, and, and isn't that isn't that? And if again, not
0: to just sort of belabor the sociopath point but like we've we've learned i think you know if not from uh psychology classes um from other tv shows that would focus on that kind of behavior uh that like children and animals tend to be something that will like where any any sense of affection right or empathy would, would go that direction right and they or and then so beyond that like determining that which they see is is helpless and, gives them sort of a purpose or mm-hmm. a power over right I mean, then... well
1: and the fact that her children are an extension of her own identity because either by either by way of what society has done to her or by way of her own narcissism or whatever those are the people in her world that that she projects her self-love onto i suppose right i mean that's one way to look at it i do think that she does have A strong motherly affection. And I think it's interesting when she sort of sidles up to Marjorie. Yeah. And you think that she's going to totally, you know, threaten her life or do whatever. She kind of gets vulnerable about Tommen's innocence. Yeah. 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 And my thought there was even when Cersei's being her most vulnerable, she's still really dangerous.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because you get the sense of that there's there's more to
1: it than this, right? This isn't... Yeah, I get the sense that, like, all right, she's being invulnerable. Now, if I'm vulnerable, that doesn't mean that she won't entrap me with that information later.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You just, she's, I mean, she's amongst all the ones that you just, you just don't trust. You don't take anything at face value.
1: Yeah, even when she's... Yeah, right. All right, so the big deal in this episode is what happens at Craster's Keep. So, Bran is a hostage, and Mira and Jojen are hostages, and Hodor is Hodoring, and yeah, he certainly is. <laughs> Clubfoot Carl is, uh, boy, that fight scene with the knives—that that was that was something. Yeah, and yeah. Carl's end, oh baby. I, I did I think they did a great job, great job in a very short amount of time of establishing that Carl is formidable. Right. And menacing. And so you kind of you got the sense that John's actually in, in trouble here. And really, they didn't introduce him with many episodes. So I, I liked what they did with him. And I thought that the choreography of that fight scene was pretty great.
0: For a character you didn't really see a, a bunch of, it, it was very effectively done and to the point where I never felt like he was not mm-hmm. a real big threat.
1: And I think part of it was sort of Rast because Rast himself was a, a bully. Right. so if you can bring in a guy that the bully that bullies the bully or whatever
0: and really just bullied him down like he rast seemed like sam in that
1: situation and then rast like kicks Hodor or whatever and said if I had your body I would I would rule the world or something like that right and you get the so you got the sense there that you don't get to choose the body that you you're born into but if you're Bran Stark uh, Uh, you can choose which one you go into I guess yeah you got options you got options so we saw Bran go into Hodor which I guess at that point he's Brodor (laughs) I like it and then Brodor does my least favorite fight choreography (laughs) where he picks up Locke by one hand by the throat and holds him up in the air I feel like I see that in every action flick every action Mm -hmm. flick and it's almost like these choreographers have never seen a fight before (laughs) i mean
0: yeah it doesn't the dramatic effect it's going for rarely moves anymore
1: it's like oh that guy's really strong yeah but what why isn't he using his other hand if he really wants to kill this guy is he
0: well and it's a time it's a it's it's a time waster it's and you hold somebody up and then all they have to do is if they've got a knife or whatever they can it can uh, cut you right under the arm, and that's a, well. You're, and you're that, kind of did a li-
1: that did subvert the, the trope a little bit because normally what happens is what you're saying, you know, someone will hold you up against the wall by one hand, and then someone will come and you know slit your throat or whatever. Right. Um, in this case, <laughs> uh, Brodor just snaps his neck. Yeah, he just—it's
0: happening. I mean, that was that was a big deal. And then, and then you do, and for the first time, I got a sense of Hodor mattered to me a, a little bit. Cause uh, say more about that. Because all of a sudden, you're like, I don't think Hodor wanted to do that. Yeah. Okay. And, that's good. And I think, th- and I think that that's a uh, that's an important moment because it's like, I mean, Hodor gets he gets exploited, man, and
1: uh, yeah, and and that actually is is drawn out a lot in the books. Like Martin describes that Hodor is like cowering in fear in a little corner in the back of his mind and uh, you know bran's trying to say it's gonna be okay it's gonna be okay but basically he's get you know he's he gets mind violated
0: Um, yeah and no matter yeah sure bran is the one pulling the strings but hodor now is saddled with the memory and whatever knowledge he has to know that uh he just he just snapped somebody's neck whether and that doesn't seem like that's hodor's jam
1: no hodor likes the hodor
0: yeah well, well, Hodor, Hodor, horror, that's all we know for sure <laughs> 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 all right, hard be it from us to fill in those blanks, but
1: okay, help me that's with all something all right, so rast is running away, he's the only one that escapes, right, mm, mm-hmm. and where does he go? He runs over to where the wolf is being kept because why, <laughs> I don't know, like let me run right over here to this wolf that I just antagonized. Uh, because, well, no reason. I guess I want to give the the wolf a chance to get revenge. <laughs> like, I didn't, I did not, that, that didn't work for me.
0: Yeah, it feels like there's a lot of audience service in a lot of these,
1: Yeah, a lot of these scenes. Yeah, it's you not done, I mean, you, you could have had him run through the woods or whatever. That could have worked. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm glad Rast got eaten by a wolf, but, um, just, just think about these things ahead of time. That's what I'm asking.
0: So, so this is a uh, now you're showing a lot more um, critique uh, over uh, production choices yeah. than you have. And prior, is this is this in part just the way things are, are breaking down, or is this somewhat coinciding with the now we're starting to see divergence from the books?
1: Uh, that's and a good so question.
0: I, and so, therefore, do you feel like maybe. They're they're falling more yeah. into um, television slash movie tropes as opposed to following the literature.
1: Hmm. That's good. This is all very complicated because I will say this: that I think that if you ask the you know garden variety Game of Thrones fan, they would say season four is their favorite.
0: I was doing so because I was trying to avoid any kind of spoilers, but I I've been trying to like do a little bit of that kind of research, right? Like what is the, what is the perception of these, of these seasons? And I think that that's because, you know, we talk so much about seven and eight and the problems and the this and the that. But then when you mentioned about all the different uh, choices that are going to be made that are going from the book, I was very curious to see what, what is like, so you'll find these like articles, like the game of Thrones, Episodes or seasons ranked from mm-hmm. you know best towards.
1: yeah four is pretty high on anyone's
0: yeah, list four if four shows up very high, so that sort of colored
1: my um well my i will perception. say this okay let let me let me sort of let me sort of run down the problems uh for me um i like i like this episode, i like it a lot, i think it has some of the best dialogue of the entire series, and i uh i didn't like the previous episode or, or episode three two episodes prior yeah, yeah. at all. I didn't like that at all. No, you did not. Um. So I think it, I think that this season ranks pretty high for me on the list. I don't normally just hate anything that diverges from the books. I think in a lot of ways, when they've made choices that diverge from the books, I've liked them. I've liked what they've done. I do like the season. Um, I do. I do like this episode. Let's do a quick power ranking. Okay. Who's going to sit the Iron Throne, Steve? Uh, okay, so just... I mean, it's not gonna, <gasps> it ain't going to be Joffrey anymore.
0: No, it's not going to be Joffrey. Um, I don't think... I think we can wipe off Um, Greyjoy just because I feel like his leech has got to come into effect.
1: If it was going to be Greyjoy, don't you think that they would have put a little bit more in this story? <laughs> yeah a little bit like he he's it's like there was like oh yeah remember great joy
0: and everyone's like no <laughs> actually i don't um yeah i don't think it's gonna be theon or it's not Reed. gonna
1: be hot pie
0: <laughs> it's good. i don't sleep on hot, Hi- pie. uh, <laughs> hot pie's gone well geez yeah that's a great question i mean i think i'm gonna shift um i'm gonna shift to danny danny yeah danny on the iron throne um, I mean, she's got dragons, she's got an army, and she and she hit the pause button. And she's and as it,
1: confident as a Hitler wearing <laughs> Hitler yeah, mustache, Michael wearing Michael, wearing Jordan,
0: Jordan. Michael Jordan. Yeah, and and I think and I think the fact that she is sort of like, all right, let's let's do a trial run and see how that works out. I think that there's something to be said for that. That shows the uh, to me that shows the wisdom that uh, Tywin was sort of hinting at,
1: right? Well, okay, all right. So this is this is interesting because just in these last couple episodes we've seen hints that Danny may not be as altruistic as we wish she was. Sure. So does that mean that her so in order for us to feel good about her on the Iron Throne at the end, it seems like her character will have to have some kind of come to Jesus moment where she realizes I'm not going to be like my father. I'm not going to be mad for vengeance. Kind of Yeah. I don't
0: know. I don't know if I agree with that because that is what we say we want. Yeah. And that's what we say would be satisfying. But I think what we've seen is we saw it with Ned. We saw it with, with Rob is that uh, the better you are, the better intended you are it does not necessarily mean a whole lot. In terms yeah. of uh, in terms of victory and in terms of being the best suited, right? Mm-hmm. Like it would be great if um, you know. I mean, for all we know, Tommen may be the best king option out there, just because he's so darn sweet and stupid. But that's not—I don't find that to be realistic. So I see, right? Like, if, if, if if
1: Tommen's on the throne, it means Tywin and Marjorie are in charge, right? Right, and so if if Danny, you know. Sure, she's
0: had her her issues as of late, and we've seen some some concerns about her ability to be altruistic, or whatever. But I I think that I think she's got time if she takes the time to lead. She might find some balance.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here's the thing about Danny that, that we haven't discussed. Right, let's say she does top the power ranking. Um, she's a woman, and mm-hmm. if she decides to marry for an alliance, right. So, so I don't think she follows that type of path. Yeah, so that's that's a little tri- I mean it's tricky because Westeros have has seen queens in the past but normally it's the normally the man gets gets to have all the power. So Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll keep track of the power rankings.
0: That's anyway, that's my two cents. We'll see what happens.
1: For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to keep with the theme of Veil politics. This is a short excerpt of a longer conversation that I had with Gregory Webster. Greg has some interesting insights into Sweet Robin's character I thought I'd it here. Here is psychologist Greg Webster. I mean, one thing that we're lacking in these, in these stories so far is intrigue that's north of the wall. You know, we have a menace. North of the wall, but Craster's gone, and who else is actually, you know, bringing us? And, you know, Mance Raider's gone. Who's actually going to bring us intrigue north of the wall? Right. What if we have competing Green Seers? That would be, that would yeah. Be well,
3: there's, thing. I, I think there's definitely that potential, right? So we're just, you get these, you know, people with somewhat psychic forces battling it out, and, um, You know, Preston Jacobs is an advocate of um, Sweet Robin having those types of powers. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. One of the reasons why uh, it's believed that uh, he's being administered Sweet Sleep all the time. In uh, is it? Yeah. Is it or is it Sweet Sleep or Milk of the Poppy? I forget which, but he's he's been being given. I think it's Sweet Sleep at levels that would pretty much knock out an adult. Hmm. Uh, just to help him sleep is to actually deaden his psychic powers. And in fact, there's, you know, there are other George Barton novels where, you know, there are characters either take chemicals to, you know, heighten their psychic awareness. In fact, we get that even in, in this series. But they also get chemicals to to deaden them. Right. Um. And there's uh, there's this one point where, um. Sweet Robin is is more or less kind of described as a sickly kid most of the time, Mm -hmm. and he's usually described as being pretty physically weak. And he's also, you know, he's a he's a little boy. He's 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 I forget how old he is. Like he's like five or six, you know, and he's still not weaned. Mm -hmm. But um, he refuses to to eat his porridge, and he's able to like fling this bowl of porridge like across the room to the extent that it hits the uh, maester in his, I think, stomach or rib cage and knocks him, I think on the floor and knocks the wind out of him or something like that. <laughs> so if you, if you watch any of Preston Jacobs things, he draws on a lot of other uh, books and short stories and well, mostly short stories in George Martin's kind of expanded thousand worlds universe where he talks about teak, which is short for telekinesis. Which is, of course, the power to kind of, you know, usually move objects or influence the movement of objects in the physical world. And I know this is total like tinfoil uh, theorizing here, but there's, you know, some possibility that a lot of the so called magic that's going on in the Stark children isn't so much from the Starks themselves, but actually from the Tullys oh, going back along their, you know, female lines to, um, uh, what's her name Who used to bathe in blood And uh, the I'm trying to remember Who the Tully's are The Wents, Right So the Tully's uh, Hoster Tully I think married a Went One of those bat families I forget one But I forget which Which one But uh, the The uh, the families that used to live At Heron Hall. Yeah, yeah. practice practiced all sorts of dark arts And one of them was um, This woman who would Bathe in blood Supposedly And allegedly Her bats would fly around At night Snatching up children uh, to sacrifice them to keep her young and so on.
1: I'm gonna look this up because I, I want to know yeah. this her name.
3: Uh, but she's a like a great grandmother or great. Oh, is, great it, d- is it Danielle Lofton? Yes, Lofston, Right. So it was the I think Karen Hall was passed from the Loftons to the Wentz and then someone else. But the Tullys, or at least the Tully daughters, I think through their female ancestry go back to her. And so, you know, there could be some sort of, you know, weird thing going on with their line that maybe, you know, took some generations to show up.
1: I don't know. So it could be that Sweet Robin has, is manifesting some of these. And if that's the case, and there are sort of these magical Medichlorians in <laughs> <laughs> in Catelyn's blood. Right. Uh, and we also know that there's Medichlorians. In the first men blood, right? Yeah, or some of them. Some of them, anyway. It could be that, that Bran is a beneficiary of both lines, right? Right, right. My thanks, as always, to Professor Webster. If you're interested in something that Greg wrote and published online, you can look up his name, Gregory Webster, and then put in personality perception, colon, Game of Thrones. It's about how fans perceive their favorite characters and in some ways project their own personalities onto those characters. It's a bit technical, but it's available online, and I thought it was fascinating. And that's all for this week.